guys. All right, let me wait a second. It was like, all right. All right, guys, uh, I'm talking today to Matt Siegel. We're going to be talking about law, building a law firm, and what happens because, I mean, on the real estate side, we show up. Sometimes our broker loses their license. For Matt, he showed up, and his, as an attorney, his, his broker, his firm lost their license, so he had to go out on his own. So we're going to talk about the journey about going out on your own, building a business, and what Matt has done has been absolutely crazy. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Let's dive right into it. Good. Thank what, you for like, having me. Yeah, take us into the day. You show up or you read the newspaper. How'd you find out that, you know, the person that you're working for is now has a suspended license? Yeah, so crazy day uh, to, to, you know, say the least. I'll preface it a little bit by um, just kind of bringing to where my where my, my mindset was at that time. So um, I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and I always knew I wanted uh, to do something, to go out on my own, be my own boss, especially in my field. There's a lot of bosses who, um, a lot of people who own firms and practices that aren't the best business operators. Maybe they're a good lawyer, maybe not, but most of them don't know how to really operate a business. And it's really, um, you know, not fun working for these types of people. So that's where my headspace was at. I was uh, in the months before that, reaching out to my firms who work at like my friends who work at corporate firms um, who may not have a personal injury aspect because that's what I do. And, you know, saying to them, hey, listen, maybe it will be worth it if I come on and I'll, I'll, I'll start that branch of your firm. Now, the problem with that with everything is that um, basically you need to have clients to bring to them. And all the clients that I work for, I either brought to my current firm or they are part of, my, of that current firm. So I'd really be starting out at nothing. So it was sort of a hard sell to say, hey, let me come on, maybe pay me a salary, maybe not, but I'm going to have no cases to really bring and we'll work them up. And by the way, when I get cases in my field, you don't really get paid on those for a couple of years. So it was a really hard sell. It wasn't really happening. I knew the answer was to go out on my own. But again, if I get a case, I don't get paid for two, three years. How am I going to pay my bills? So that's where my mindset was, right? So then I get into, I think I was in court that morning. I come back to the office and everyone starts swarming me. Did you see the paper? Did you see the paper? They're talking about the New York Law Journal and they're talking about the front page of it, which said that our boss, his license was suspended. Keep in mind, obviously he knew that was coming, never said anything to any of us. So now it's mayhem there. Deep down, I'm thinking, whoa, this could be opportunity. I don't know yet at that point. So I'll, I'll kind of make a, a short a long story short a little bit, we have a meeting with his attorney, not him, because I and the other attorney said, you know, we need to hear it from someone who we could trust, not someone who's, you know, in trouble now, right? So he basically basically said, hey, listen, you all basically need to find new jobs. All the clients need new lawyers because he's the 100% owner of the firm and he cannot represent by law any of these clients. So then my wheels are now turning a lot. And his lawyer actually said, by the way, this is how some of the biggest firms get started by something like this happening. And then and then, you know, you making something happen. So now I'm really starting to, to think about this. And I speak to my boss and I say, hey, listen, you know, I feel terrible for what you're going through, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, it wasn't intentional, you know, and, and I'll table that for another time. But um He's just wanted to stay involved. And I was saying, listen, by law, you can't. That's called the unauthorized practice of law. So now I knew I had to separate myself from him. Then he wasn't telling the clients that they needed to find a new lawyer. This was pretty shocking and appalling because everybody should have found out right away. So now I'm in, you know, I'm in this state of flux where like I know this is the opportunity I need to capitalize on, but 
I don't want to step over any lines and, and maybe get in trouble myself. I don't want to do anything unethical, improper, that kind of stuff. So um, I'm going to mention this because I think it, it, it's an important part. What I did then, I hired my own ethics attorney to make sure no matter what I did, what conversations I had, I was protected because he was going to tell me what I can say, what I can say, all that kind of stuff. I think that's important to bring up because when you're in this state of this could be my opportunity, you may start reacting emotionally. You may do things that might not be the best thing for your interest. So I kind of got this guy as a sword and a shield. And then anytime a, uh, an attorney, I'm sorry, a client called, I would say, hey, listen, his license was suspended. You need to find a new attorney. And I'd stop there. And one by one, because, you know, I I was always a believer in, in customer and client service. And I would always talk to them like a human being and not, you know, file on the shelf. One by one, they said, Matt, I want you to be my lawyer. I want you to be my lawyer. I want you to be my... So it was their choice. And now they're coming to me. So what I did from then on is I took subways, uh, buses into the heart of the Bronx, into the heart of Brooklyn, not, you know, not the best places to be. That gained a lot of their respects too. And that's basically how I started off. I got 30 or so pretty solid cases, you know, decent mid to high level cases. Um, I worked my connections for office space. I got a fantastic, unbelievable office. And that's basically how I got started. And I was, you know, um, basically working on a shoestring budget, doing stuff for other firms to try to make some money to pay my bills, to pay my salary. And little by little, start winning cases and growing and growing and growing. And now we're to the point where, you know, a couple months ago, we had a $5 million settlement and uh, we're just doing amazing things. And, you know, I'm hiring associates and, and we're growing. And so it all started. And the reason why I take a little bit longer to tell this story is because, you know, if I could talk to anyone, you're always going to have that opportunity. I think people talk about in your life, there may be one, two, maybe three of these opportunities that come your way. And if you're not ready to pounce when they come, you're going to live your life in regret thinking, what would have been if I would have done that? And, you know, you'll hear a lot. It's almost always better to take the risk and maybe regret that than to live with the regret of not taking the risk. So I took the risk. I pounced on that opportunity and it was the best thing I ever did. Phenomenal. So when did this all happen? Like kind of give me the timeline. Yeah, that happened towards the very end of 2018, okay, which so and it feels like years. last year. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's been a little bit while, but it goes so fast, you know, when, when you're doing things on your own because you got the freedom. You're not, you know, punching someone else's clock. So it's 2018, which is crazy. 100%. So let's kind of walk through the last five years. So yeah, right away, you know, this happens, you get an attorney and then you're going after making sure these people are aware that they are in fact, you know, working with somebody who has a suspended license. You're not stating that you can help them. They're just coming to you. So you got 30 clients really fast. So like, give us like, what happens in year one? What happens in year two? Yeah. So when I got these cases, they were already existing at the firm that I came from. Right. So it wasn't like they were all starting off brand new cases, which was great for me because I needed to get some income. Um, and so the, so they, they varied, you know, early stage, mid stage, end stage cases. So right away, I started settling some of these cases. And so that was providing me some sort of income. Um, and that that was my main focus for the first year or so is is trying to get all these cases in a position where we could resolve them. Uh, the other main thing that I really focused on that I think no matter what business is really important to do is to really focus on what separates you from everyone else. Um, and 
obviously I'm in, I'm in New York City. I'm in the belly of the beast with some of the biggest firms in, in the country, if not the world, right? So how was I going to separate myself? Because a lot of these firms have amazing, amazing lawyers who you know, I know and I work with and, and they're fantastic. But I need to know, I knew that at some time these 30 cases were going to be over and I need to start generating more cases. And so what I always leaned on, and I think any business can do it and should do it, is what I call extreme customer client service. So in my business, what I said before is there comes a point in time of basically every firm where it just becomes a race to get as many cases as you can. And sure enough, when that happens, you're just putting the cases on the shelf and then you're reacting to when you have to do something. You're not being proactive, you're being reactive. And what happens every time is that the client loses their you know, sense of you know, belonging to this firm. There's no client communication. They're leaving messages that are not being called back. And so I worked at one, two firms like this, and I learned very importantly what not to do, which is that. So I, I thought right away, what I'm going to do is I'm going to not just provide customer and client service. I'm going to take it so far and be very, very extreme with it. So every client I signed up with had my cell phone. We're texting. We're calling. I'm calling them a week after I spoke to them. Hey, anything new? I just wanted to reach out, which they're not used to, right? And so what happens with that is it's not going to happen right away, but you're going to resolve these cases for, for good numbers because what ends up happening is that you learn so much about these people and that helped in my business, that helps me make these case settlements bigger because I know how it's affected their life. And I could say passionately to the insurance company or if it goes to a trial, which I do, um, I could tell the jury how it's affected their life. So now I'm making more money than a typical settlement would be. And they're leaving me thinking this was an amazing experience. So then the word of mouth starts spreading. And that's how I get, you know, there's some clients where, I've gotten four or five family members from that one client just because I treated them like my family. So in year one, again, it was really all about um, taking the cases that I had that were towards the end and, and resolving them for good money and then figuring out a way to go forward with getting new clients um, in, in a way that I didn't have to spend too much money on the marketing. Last piece I would also say is in, in year two, I started doing trials for other firms. So what happens there is like the case is all done for whatever reason, they don't want to do the trial. And I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. Um, and so I'll do the trial for them. And then I get a significant piece of the attorney's fee. So that was a way for me to make a name for myself as a really good trial lawyer and also make money without doing the three years of work. I'm only on trial for a week or two, uh, if that, and I'm making a nice chunk of money. A lot of times I'd go to the trial date and the insurance company, they just want to see if you're ready for trial and then they'll settle. So I was making good money just showing up for one day, settling the case and then being done, which was great. Um, again, I know, so, sorry, long, long answer here, but I just want to touch back on the trial uh, aspect because I think this applies to every business. Doing the trial, doing becoming a trial lawyer was a skill that, I would say 90, 95% of lawyers don't want to do because it's nerve wracking. It's scary. You're in front of the jury. You're in front of the judge. The lights are on you. You need to know everything. You're basically performing and it's tough. So before I left for, for my own uh, firm, I was doing trials at that last firm and I was developing that skill. And I was the only trial lawyer at that firm. So when the time came where all these uh, clients needed a new lawyer, I looked around and I knew I'm the only lawyer that could handle their cases through the end, which is a major benefit for them. 
So what I want would tell people, any of your listeners who are who are kind of um, you know looking for sort of a difference maker, is I think in every profession there's one skill that could separate you from the pack. At least one skill in my in my field, it's being a trial lawyer. In your field, I'm not positive what it is, but I'm sure that it exists. And it's what everyone else is scared of doing. But if you do that, if you learn that skill, you're going to separate yourself, and it's going to pay off tenfold year after year after year. So, so you mentioned going into year two and three, you were on a quest to figure out lead generation that was cost effective. Yeah. Yeah. What did you find? Yeah. So, so again, so that word of mouth, so cost effective is huge. Cause again, I cannot pay to be on the top page of Google when someone searches personal injury lawyer, in New York city, because these, you know, they're paying million dollars a week on their, on their, you know, advertising budgets and like that. So I, I started on, on a couple things. So one, again, is just extreme client service. That's the best way because not only is it a free way to get new cases, the cases that come from that are invariably the best because they're almost vetted for you. You're not getting calls from someone, you know, I don't know. A lot of times you'll get some calls from someone who has maybe a mental health condition and they think, you know, the world is ending and you'll get these calls and Google's charging you for them and stuff like that. Uh, when it's a family member who has talked to someone who's been my client, they know what to expect. And even if it's not a case, it's still it's still a very, very good lead. So that was number one, first and foremost, to this day, that's still my number one method of, of client acquisition. Um, number two, I would say was sort of unique ways so of of paid ads and I, and it's a very low budget with what I do but you know a tip that I would give people is someone came to me with Google local services ads so I don't know you know most of how it works but I do know that what that does is it provides smaller businesses like me an opportunity to maybe get on that first page because they vet you as a solid local business and Google wants to provide local businesses that opportunity. So I've gotten some good leads from that. Um, that was great too. And the last piece I'll say is social media, uh, which every, most people are very scared of doing. Um, you know, I started, I started doing it and, and it evolves it. You know, I've gotten people that I've been working with on, on Fiverr from, you know, Pakistan and stuff who have helped me edit my videos who were great. Then you don't hear from them for six months. And, you know, that's an issue. Uh, now I'm working with a much, much more um, serious and amazing company out of Denver who's helping me. But, you know, social media from the very, very beginning, it you know, you, you don't need to look at it as I need to have a million followers. In fact, I'm still very, very small because the way I did it for the first couple of years was not really with a growth uh, method behind it. Now we're start, starting to grow a little bit more. But you know what I told my associate when I first hired him is, let me see your Facebook profile. Let me see your Instagram profile. And they didn't mention you know personal injury lawyer, which one on one. Just start off. People, you're not gonna. People aren't gonna come to you if they don't know what they do. So a great story with that is you know I started posting some videos on Facebook and Instagram and at least saying I'm a personal injury lawyer. And lo and behold, I get a call from someone I haven't spoken to from 25 years ago in middle school and he had a dog bite case. And so, you know, I, I became his lawyer a week later, his friend had a dog bite case. I settled that case in a couple months for a couple hundred thousand dollars, the full uh, extent of the policy. My fee was a hundred thousand dollars like that because I put up a Facebook post that someone from high school saw. So if you're not doing social media because you're scared, you got to get over it. You know, nobody really gives a shit about, 
Um, the fact that you're, you think everyone's going to hate on you. Hey, who does this guy think he is? You know, uh, you know, Joe from high school is posting videos. Like he's the man. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody's going to say that to you. And if they do, they're idiots. All right. Because you're the one who's putting yourself out there. You know what people are going to have for you? Much more respect that you're, you're having the balls to do that. And by the way, you're going to be laughing all the way to the bank when it finally pays off and it will pay off. So those three methods, you know, um, again, just word of mouth, just over delivering with your clients, um, trying to do some creative paid ads like local services on Google, not just trying to go paid ads and competing with everyone. And then just using social media to your benefit were the key ways that, you know, I've started to gain some traction. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. You don't have to get into this because this is personal. Yeah. But- if we look at, I mean, in real estate, when we grow teams and grow these businesses, we're very intentional about understanding what our average lifetime client value is and how much we spend in ads. Yeah. Can you kind of talk to us like, what, what does cost of acquisition look like for you outside of the word of mouth marketing space? And how do you think about it as a percentage of your uh, overall budget? Great question, because I'm a big believer in data, data, however you want to say it, right? Yeah. Um, it's really hard to do that, though, when you're a small firm. Um I'm sure accountants out there and CFOs will say, no, it's not. Um, I just find the practical aspect of it is a little bit because things sort of like blend into each other. You're, you're, you know, you may not be positive where someone came from, even though you asked them. Um, so, so, you know, the data isn't always a hundred percent authentic. So I do look at that for sure. And so, um, I'll give you an example. So for this Google local services ad, um, it's sort of like, I, I still don't even fully understand it, but they they charge you sort of two ways. It's like a monthly budget that you're basically paying no matter what. And then per lead, you get charged on top of that, right? So um, that is a way that I've been able to take that data and look and see um, what those cases are coming from. And those all are, you know, less than I would say per good lead, They've been uh, maybe in the $500 range, maybe even less, which, which, you know, is amazing for my business because when I, you know, eventually settle a case, we're talking, you know, five, six figure settlements and fees for me. So that is a huge ROI. Um, a lot of, you know, and I think though that ratio 
is is somewhat low because they don't give you a million of them. You know, I get I think it comes in waves. So there'll be a couple of weeks a month you don't hear anything, and then a couple of weeks where you're getting a bunch. So I'm not getting a huge amount, but for a small firm, I don't want a huge amount because that could end up, you know, sort of burying me. Um, before I could scale properly. And scaling is another thing that's that's really important. So, um, you know, those leads, I, I really do think it's important to keep track of those metrics. Again, I think it's harder to do in my business for whatever reason, but, you know, anything, I think $1,000 or less is is a huge win. And for that, that's, that's what we're seeing. So let's talk about the team. Like how many attorneys, staff, like how's your business structure yeah. today? Cool. So forever... I was I'm a was a very conservative um, person, and and I say that knowing that I wholeheartedly look at team members. I don't love calling them employees, whatever. Um, team members are an investment, not an expense. I think that's really important for business owners because I worked at firms where you know a paralegal is really important for an attorney. If if you have a ton of business, a uh, ton of cases, you simply can't get to all those cases at once. So paralegal is critical. And this guy would hire paralegals with zero experience, a lot of times foreign. So they did not speak good English and we'd have to train them and then they'd be overwhelmed and then they'd quit and repeat over and over and over again. And even when they'd stay, they weren't, they weren't, you know, skilled enough to do it where you could trust them. You could delegate, you know, you delegate, but then you'd end up doing it yourself anyway. So I say what I'm about to say with that in my mindset, uh, because I was really conservative. I was bootstrapping from day one, doing everything by myself because I wanted to make sure no matter what, um, you know, bills are going to be paid. Um, you know, I, I had I live in New York City. So once a month I have to pay the rent and I after I vomit from the amount of what of what the rent is for my apartment. So there's a lot of expenses to go in and I wanted to make sure I was doing that. But again, I entrepreneurial spirit. I'm in a lot of business masterminds. I know that it's an investment. So you're going to get an ROI. So then I started looking for some creative ways. So I had a virtual assistant that I found uh, online. She lives in um, Tennessee. So much lesser uh, cost of living than here. Um, And so I was paying her really nominal amounts for, for us to do the things that I really should not be doing. So getting medical records, sending letters out, that kind of stuff. I then had a, uh, an intern. I've had a couple interns, but one intern who started with me day one of law school. Unfortunately for him, it was right after COVID. He, his entire law school experience was virtual, which was crazy. But um, finally he graduated. I was like, whoa, you're done? So, you know, he was getting something out of it too. He got a lot of school credits, but I didn't have to pay him anything. I did pay him here or there some bonuses and stuff, but I basically had free labor for for him. And then he graduated and I finally hired him as my associate. So right now it's a small team. It's me, him. Um, we have another intern working for us. We have my virtual assistant. And, you know, as we grow uh, with more cases, we'll probably hire a couple people in the next couple months. But it's just about scaling our system to make sure when we hire, you know, or as we grow, we're, we're keeping the same system. So that extreme client uh, service is never going to change. So if we have to hire someone, you know, we know it's because we're doing well and we're growing. We're not just hiring people because we think it's cool, because I want to do less work, uh, because that's how you increase your overhead too much. So that, basically, that's where we're at. I would also recommend that to anyone starting. Do as much as you can for a couple of reasons. A, it's going to save you money, but B, 
you know, you want, when you hire someone, you want to be able to tell them, listen, I was doing what you're doing last month. I know exactly what you have to do. You can't train people to do things that you want them to do if you're ever too good to do them. So, um, you know, that's that's basically the way I look at, at hiring. And I do look forward to hiring more people in different positions. And uh, I, I definitely think it'll help us uh, grow. For sure. What do you what do you think are the obstacles to growth? I think obstacles to growth are, are thinking that you're getting too big for yourself. Um, and, and because what happens is you, you, you know, you take all these cases, you don't say no, you think, oh, I have this person and this person that starts diluting the quality of your cases in, in, so in my field, then the insurance companies take note and they say, well, he's selling these cases for a lot less. You're then making less money. You're not able to, to pay them. Um, and, and you just get too big for your britches, so to speak. Uh, another thing is not being able to say no. So again, you're taking on cases that are shitty cases, pardon my French, but you know, those shitty cases take more work because they're fighting you much more for it. And you know, you have to figure out ways to get them. You may have to take them to trial and pay for experts on a terrible case. So you have to vet, start vetting your cases more. And then I think also, like I said, you're looking at, um, team members and things that could help you grow as expenses and not investments, which I think, you know, it's, it's so short sighted because the second that you make the leap, that you take that investment and it nearly always pays off. I think the second you cross that break even point, you're like, why the hell didn't I do this right away? And and it always happens, but it's, it takes balls. It takes guts to go out there and say, listen, I'm going to start, I'm going to pay this, this person 50, 60, a hundred thousand dollars that I would like to keep in the business or for myself. Um, but it's short-sighted because it's, it's nearly always going to pay off if you're doing it right. But if you're hiring people just because you, you know, you want to do less work, that's a huge impediment to growth ironically, because you think you're growing, but you're really shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. So what is your vision for your business life and business next 12 to 18 months? Um, it's a great question. It's, it's an, and by the way, I think that's a great time frame to look at things. Everyone's looking, thinking about, you know, 10 years from now or tomorrow, that, that nice window of I'd even maybe even shorten it to nine, 12, 18 months is huge because it's actionable, but it's also a little bit out in the future where you have some time to implement that stuff. So my vision again is helping as many people as we can who need our help. Uh, we're going to try to, you know, really take on more high value cases. When I mean when I say high value, I, I mean, um, you know, people who are more significantly injured, who need our help, who can't work. Um, it's people are when they come to us, it's really really difficult because they can't work, but they have to pay their bills. Um, so I really want to help more of those people. I was mentioning to you when we chatted, we have a, a, a wrongful conviction case where our client has been in prison for a murder that we're pretty positive he didn't commit for 33 years now. So in the next 12 to 18 months, we we absolutely have to move the chains on that case. And uh, we are, we have a couple of motions going on with the NYPD and the DA's office, all that stuff where we think we're going to move those chains a lot. Um, I'd like to hire uh, probably another attorney to help us, um, you know, grow in the way I spoke to, spoke to you about. And ancillary to that is I have a coaching program that I'm starting um, for for newer, I say newer or younger, because some people go to law school when, you know, they're in their 40s or 50s. So, um, you know, I've recognized that it took me a long time to get to where I am. And I took a unique path, uh, which we don't I have to get into at all. But 
there's definitely steps along the way where if I knew what I know now, I could have been to where, where I am now five, six, seven years ago. And I see a lot of lawyers, especially in my field and law students thinking, you know, they, they look around when they get a, their first job and they're like, oh my God, I thought I was going to be making two, three times the amount of money as I am. I didn't get this corporate job that, that pays $300,000 law school. Like what the fuck did I do? Um, what, you know, and they're worried and they're scared. And I'm here to tell them, I know how to go from where you are to making, you know, uh, to having your own business, or even if you don't want to have a business, generating seven figures of, of settlements every year, where you could have the life and you know and dreams that you want. So I really want to start helping these people. Pardon me. Um, I really want to start helping any anyone I can to get to there. So that's that's another thing that you know we look to really um, you know take off, and we're we're putting out a lot of social media content just with regard to that. Awesome, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing about your life and business. For those, of you Dude, thank you so much. Yeah, for those of you out there listening, write down something you learned from today's episode. You might be in a place where your brokerage or something like that, you know, just doesn't, it ceases to exist. And if that's the case, maybe it's time to prepare for some other things. Whatever you learned from today's episode, write it down, share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable because freedom is acquiring awesome. one action at a time. If you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you. Dude, so. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 